Welcome to the Non-Op Series for the Minerals and Royalties Podcast, where EMPs and drilling capital meet the minerals and royalties space. Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. I recently sat down with Matt Gentry, Managing Director of Ellipsis U.S. Onshore Holdings, a newly formed non-op company targeting acquisitions in the $50 to $500 million plus range. During the episode, Matt walks through Ellipsis' strategy and breaks down the three transactions they closed in 2023. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Matt had to say. All right, Matt. Good morning and welcome on to the Non-Op Series podcast. Pleasure to have you and, and looking forward to jumping in. You guys are a new player, but well-known in the non-op space now with two acquisitions under your belt. So looking forward to diving in a little further. Yeah, good morning, Tim. Thanks for having me. You bet. So um, always like to get a little little personal context before we start the episode. So would love your background and and your partner, Adam Howard's background as well. You know, it's interesting. You guys are both primarily upstream operations guys. So now you're That's in the right. non-op space. It'd be kind of interesting to hear a little bit about your journey and, and why you've ended up with, with a non-op hat on. But, you know, once I'll kick it over to you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? How'd you get in the oil patch? And what's the windy road of, of your career and how it's ebbed and flowed over the years? Now you bet. Born in uh, Western North Carolina, kind of elementary, middle school in Eastern North Carolina before heading down to Jackson, Mississippi, where I did high school. Getting into the oil and gas space, I'm a geologist by background, so it started there. I was actually a, a history major at the University of North Carolina, and you had to take a science with a lab as a requisite for graduation. And I said, well, I'll just take the easiest one I can possibly find, rocks for jocks, take it, it has a lab, took it and just fell in love with it. Took the next class, historical geology, loved it even more. I mean, it, it was very engaging professor, lots of slides, really cool locales, you know, man, man, can I, is there something, a career I can make out of this? And so from North Carolina, actually said, well, if I'm going to do this geology, let's, let's do it right. Let, let's go somewhere that's exciting, you know, geology focused, and actually transferred to University of Hawaii. So spent a year at the University of Hawaii on the, on the big island and worked for the Center for the Study of Active Volcanoes and really thought I was going to do volcanology for, for a while. Long story short, kind of ran out of money in Hawaii, was going to go back to North Carolina to finish up. And along the way, I was helping a buddy move in from Jackson, Mississippi up to Mississippi State. And while he was moving in, I was went over to the geology department and they had a little museum there. And I was you know, before the students were up back on campus and was kind of just you know messing around in the in the geology museum. And, and a guy approached me and kind of asked my story and background. And it was a department head of the geology department. And he said, hey, why don't you come to school here and finish out, you know, rather than go back to North Carolina, you know, take a year off, get in-state tuition, just come here, finish out. And I said, well, gosh, classes start, you know, in a couple of days, haven't applied. And, and he actually got everything done for me in school. I was back in class, you know, started Mississippi State that semester and, and graduated from Mississippi State in, in 98 and actually took a job as a hydrogeologist, so a groundwater geologist in South Carolina and worked groundwater for a couple of years. Had a blast doing it, but, you know, wanted a little something more uh, that paid a little better and, and doing, doing some research and said, well, you know, probably oil and gas is the place for me. And so applied to uh, Texas A&M. University of Texas and Colorado School of Mines and, and Texas A&M flew me, flew me down from, from South Carolina to, to visit campus and met a good group of guys there that were all going to, to grad school there and I went to A&M. And that's kind of where I started, you know, with oil and gas. 
Got it. Got it. So early 2000s, you do a stint with Shell and then yep. a handful of, of small independents. So why don't you kind of walk through y- your experience and the hats you're wearing at these companies and the basins you're in and so on and so forth? Yeah. So Shell, great learning experience at Shell. Shell had a worldwide training center. You're one of your first training classes, your first kind of week on the job, went to Miri, Malaysia for six weeks and did an extensive six-week course in, in the kind of the fundamentals of oil and gas. And a year later, they're kind of a capstone course, another six week course over in Nordvikerhout, Holland, which are on the beach north of Amsterdam, another six week class. And Shell had a lot of training like that. Shell had, you know, would fly you to Spain to study turbidites. And so that was kind of your first year at Shell was a lot of training. They, they paired you with a mentor at Shell where we worked Gulf of Mexico. So we were working kind of Wilcox, deep shelf, Gulf of Mexico type projects, which led to some of the deeper offshore Petito fold belt type stuff, uh, discoveries that Shell had out in the Gulf of Mexico. So the first three years kind of was doing Gulf of Mexico exploration in New Orleans. At the time, Shell was kind of speeding uh, the exploration component of Shell into Houston and, and Katrina sped that process up. So all of exploration moved to Houston with Katrina. And then at that point in your career, you're kind of deciding, okay, do I want to do expat or do I want to stay in the US? And I was young and, and single and said, you know, the expat life seems seems pretty cool. Let me apply to an expat position. And they assigned me to Tripoli, Libya. I said, well, is the expat position, is this really what I want to do? So I, I stuck my head up and, and actually answered a, an ad in the Houston Geological Society Bulletin for an exploration manager for a small company in Dallas. And that was a Yorktown-backed company called Camden Resources, which was doing onshore deep gas wells in South Texas and applied for the job and, and kind of have since been with, with smaller kind of either private equity backed or, or small micro public companies since Camden. The team at Our Recent Associates has partnered with Tim Powell to bring you brief legal updates on issues that matter to mineral owners, non-ops, and operators. We hope you find this segment informative. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me, Rachel Reese, at rreese at rreeselaw.com. Here is a case that we have been watching, and if you own or operate minerals in Louisiana, you should be too. Today's case is a recent ruling by the Fifth Circuit called Self versus BPX Operating Company. The Selfs, along with their co-plaintiffs, were force pooled by BPX under the Louisiana Force Pooling Statute. Since neither the statute nor Louisiana case law addresses whether an operator in this situation can charge post-production costs back to the unleased mineral interest owners, BPX is charging these costs and the Selfs are arguing that they cannot. BPX, of course, argues that proceeds mean net proceeds but they also argue for the application of Louisiana Civil Code Doctrine of Negotiorum Gestio. (laughs) There's a fun new phrase for you. Which basically means that when you are voluntarily acting on someone's behalf and for their benefit, under the belief that they would approve of your actions if they were aware of them, you should be paid for all necessary expenses incurred in taking those actions. And therefore, BPX should be able to deduct the post-production costs attributable to the self's interest in the production. Instead of ruling on the issue, the Fifth Circuit decided to punt the question to the Louisiana Supreme Court so that they aren't stepping on any toes and creating new state law. Federal courts will sometimes do this when the case will decide an issue that the state courts have not yet addressed. Just the other day, the Fifth Circuit asked the Louisiana Supreme Court again to rule on the same issue in the case of Johnson versus Chesapeake. So next, the Louisiana Supreme Court will weigh in, likely sometime next year, on the specific issue of whether these costs can be charged by operators in this situation. And then the Fifth Circuit will take the case back up from there. Okay, so why am I telling you this and why should you care? Whether you're an operator or a mineral owner, post-production costs aren't cheap. In some areas, they can swing the effective royalty received by as much as 5%. Whichever way it goes, I'm a fan of getting issues like this settled 
where there is no guidance one way or another. That way, everyone has the same expectations when they find themselves in a force pooling situation. Our RNA will continue to watch this case closely. Subscribe to our blog, An Ounce of Prevention, or follow us on LinkedIn for the latest updates. The information and material in this advertisement is general information about our practice and firm and is for educational and informational purposes only. This information does not offer specific legal advice, and the use of this information does not create an attorney-client relationship with our RNA or any of its attorneys. The information in this advertisement should not be considered legal advice, and persons should not act upon this information without first engaging professional legal counsel. Yeah, so Camden, South Texas, then you do you have a stand as COO with Enteris Energy. Where did Enteris play? What basins? So Enteris was a small public Australian company with all their assets onshore US. And so we actually were, were drilling, a, we had a, a 7,000 acre position in McMullen County back in 2008. We shot a big 3D survey over it, chasing the Edwards line play at the time. And so our, our, our goal was to drill a vertical test, take a lot of data, uh, kick out of that well and drill a horizontal Edwards line well. And this was in 2008-9 timeframe. And as we're drilling the well, Petrahawk makes the announcement of their the play opening Eagleford well in LaSalle County. And uh, we're drilling through the Eagleford at the time and kind of had a connection over at Petrahawk and, and looked at the logs and said, man, this this looks exactly the same. Let's scrap the Edwards and go horizontal in the in the Eagleford. And our, our position quickly grew from 7,000 acres to 25,000 acres, kind of delineated the position and sold that to Chesapeake down in, back in 2010. And from there, kind of, we were, you know, more entrepreneurial than your typical public company, you know, took those proceeds, went to the, the Permian Basin in Howard County, wherever I was drilling vertical Wolfberry Wells, ended up selling that to Brightburn, you know, much different than your, your typical public company shop where you're actually kind of more of a private equity mindset. And, and that led to the, you know, the position at Forge Energy, which was NCAP and Pinebrook backed. And that's where I met Adam Howard, my partner. We worked at Forge, developing the horizontal San Andreas in Andrews County over by Shafter Lake, got that position up to, you know, over 75 wells. 5,000 barrels of oil a day. Started then putting together a position in the Delaware Basin. And that's when me and Adam spun out of Forge, formed Monadnock Resources, which was Kane Anderson backed, focused on the horizontal St. Andrews play up in Cochrane and Yoakum counties. We did that for you know about five years with, with Kane. Yeah. And so that brings you to end of November. And then you guys kind of wound down the Monadnock vehicle and partnered up with, with Westlawn to form Ellipsis. So let, let's kind of shift gears and, and talk about yeah. what you're doing now. So the, just real quick before we jump into the Ellipsis story. So mm-hmm. you guys are backed by Westlawn. You know, who is Westlawn? Are they a generalist investor? Do they do other things in oil and gas? Just a little background on their portfolio and why they're set up. And then we'll, we'll jump in an ellipsis. Yeah, so a private company that uh, manages upstream oil and gas investments on behalf of their investors. There's ourselves, uh, Ellipsis Oil and Gas, which uh, does the the non-operated onshore U.S. basin component. We also have an, an offshore non-op group called Westlawn America's Offshore. They focus in South America, Latin America, Gulf of Mexico, very active in the non-op space offshore. We also are evaluating opportunities uh, for potential investment in the Middle East. And on top of that, there's also a heater cable technology called Salamander, that's part of the portfolio. And, and Salamander's focused on heavy oil plays where they can change the viscosities of oil to make it more productive and long horizontal heavy oil plays. Also with flow assurance, tiebacks in the Gulf of Mexico or offshore plays, or if you have a long tieback to a, a smaller satellite field to a production facility, you can run their, their heater cables for flow assurance back to the production facility. 
You know, it's interesting when when you guys launched and, and put out your press release this past summer, digging in and trying to figure out. I'd never heard of Westlaw before, and I came across the the offshore platform. Right. And Ivan is just a small world. So in my past life, I ran Mexico for Energy Council, and was that was right when Mexico opened up to the private right. sector. And Ivan started Sierra, and then had a monetization. Right. And and, I, and so I got to know Ivan really well. And then after he sold Sierra, he was kind of bopping around, you know, looking at some stuff and the Caribbean and and right. Brazil and and was trying to set up a company he was looking for capital and then you know I just assumed you know given you guys are looking for larger tickets that they're the same and I was like oh you know son of a bitch he pulled it off right he's, he's got the <laughs> he's been wanting to do for the last four or five years so now it's just it's cool to circle back with with old friends and different hats and in you know, different lanes right but that is cool yeah yeah so t- tell me about ellipsis so you guys you know the team the band came together you were hunting on hunting for deals right basically the beginning of 20 23 and your coming out party was the original acquisition the Delaware that was press release in June or July of 2023. But what what is the thesis? What are you guys focused on? And then why did you and Adam shift to doing another? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You guys have been with small entrepreneurial yep. EMP companies your whole career. And, and now you're really an elephant hunter in the non-op space, relatively speaking, right? That's right. So I mean, I'll back up a little bit. So, you know, Adam and I are kind of betting the common and, and talking to a lot of different private equity backed groups in the summer of 22, we get a call from a guy named Brad Vinzant. We knew Brad from Kane Anderson. He was one of the first hires at Westlawn. Brad reached out to us, told us a little bit more about Westlawn, the amount of capital they had to deploy and said, hey, do you, let's, let's come up with a strategy and, and, and pitch it. And me and Adam thinking about it, you know, how are we going to employ you know, this quantum of capital fairly quickly and think that the non-operated space was the best way to play that that, that strategy. Uh, we think that that thesis has played out. You know, Our first acquisition was, was you know pretty meaty, north of 4,500 barrels a day, a lot of running room. Our second acquisition, again, 3,000 acres in the Northern Delaware Basin, pretty green at the time, but that the activity on that asset, it just really ramped up and that's producing over 3,000 barrels a day. And we, we closed actually our third acquisition yesterday. We had another 6,000 barrels a day. So kind of pro forma going into next year, we're going to sit about 13,000 barrels a day for the full year, two stream with over 2,000 kind of gross remaining locations. So you just years of inventory. And, and kind of our thoughts were, yeah, we do come from an operating background. We think that gives us a unique lens into the non-op space. You know, the we, we think like operators, you know, I think that does provide some unique background for us. We also, you know, at Kane Anderson and in, at Ellipsis too, we, we evaluate tons of deals. So that's kind of in our DNA is to go in and tear deals apart and underwrite deals. And the non-op game is unique in the sense that the hardest thing to do, the biggest challenge in the non-op space is scheduling. You know, you don't have that insight in, into the, a lot of the operators initially when you're underwriting these deals and, and scheduling out and underwriting a, a non-op asset is the, the biggest challenge. We take a kind of, I don't know if it's a unique approach, but the approach we take is we you know do stochastic modeling on different schedulings to look at the return profiles of, of how you schedule these wells out, layer that in with some some probabilistic uh, pricing models, and you get this range of outcomes, and that kind of influences your your bidding levels in, in the non-op space. I think we're also unique in the sense that you know we we think non-op is the is the best way to get tier one inventory today. You know, with the number of large operated assets in tier one rock declining, being aggregated by the, the larger companies. We think that, that that opportunity set is diminished relative to the non-op opportunity set in tier one rock. And so, you know, we're building something of scale in the non-op space and we'll continue to do so through through 24. We'll look to deploy and, and kind of double this thing in, in 2024 as well. And so we do want to build something of scale and think the non-op space lends itself well to doing that. 
Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to all of our podcast sponsors. Looking to ramp up deal flow for your minerals and non-op ground game? Since 2019, the Texas Mineral Company has closed on over 120 deals, totaling 110 million in value, with deal sizes ranging from 50K upwards of 5 million. Whether you're looking for white space, permit, duck, PDP, AFE, or wellbore only deals, the Texas Mineral Company has got you covered. For more information on how to source deal flow from the Texas Mineral Company, please email Toby Martinez at Toby at thetexasmineralcompany.com. Over the past 20 years, Riverbend Energy Group has been the definitive leader in the non-op and mineral space, where they are actively acquiring minerals in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, the Williston, and the Eagleford. Following their $1.8 billion sale of their non-op platform in 2022, they are also back actively acquiring non-op interests in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, and Williston. If you have minerals or non-op working interests in these areas that you would like to sell, then please visit www.riverbendenergygroup.com for more information. Farmers National Company has oil and gas experts located across the country ready to provide you unmatched convenience and service for your land management needs. Whether you're looking for turnkey management of oil and gas interests or simply looking for an advisor to help you sell or lease your minerals, Farmers National Company has you covered. Learn more about Farmers National Company's team of certified mineral managers, landmen, attorneys, and accountants by going to fncenergy.com or reach out directly at energy at farmersnational.com. Does your team ever struggle with employee turnover? What about right-sizing your team to fit your company's needs over time? Do you have the right accounting systems and software in place to maintain control and visibility on all your cost centers? If any of these things are challenges in your business, then Opportune's back office outsourcing could be the right solution. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Yeah, no, it, your your point is spot on from what I see in the space around highly technical groups that like to look at the rock first. Uh-huh. You know, if they had operated backgrounds, they just they struggle to get a meaningful position together in the right. base they like because the chess pieces are already on the board and the acquisition cost, you know, bids down your you know, your return threshold to a point where That's it's right. attractive, right? And then scales right. scales a challenge as well. And if you right? don't scale and operate it, yeah. I mean you're looking at tier two, tier three type rock, you know, the, the risk profile is not acceptable to us. You know, it's, we just think that access to that quality rock, the non-operated position just lends itself really well to, to gaining that access. And the market's not as saturated as, as the mineral space or as the operated space. It may become that way. I, I think maybe some of the mineral guys looks up and, and look at our kind of acquisition metrics versus their acquisition metrics. At the end of the day, it's a series of cash flows that we're evaluating, right? And I think our operated backgrounds give us the ability to underwrite, you know, CapEx, OpEx, uh, things that you're not underwriting as much so in the mineral space. And so we're getting, uh, at the end of the day, again, a series of cash flows that we think that we've underwritten appropriately and are getting them at, at, at better acquisition metrics than we can get in, in the mineral space. Yeah, no, and you kind of allude to not as saturated or not as competitive. I think what's interesting for me, you know, I've been kind of digging into the nano space the last two years. I look at the nano space as, you know, similar to where the mineral space was in 2015 and 16. And you know, what I'm alluding to is really the development of the end buyer market or the yep. larger, larger buyers. And there's just, there's not enough in non-op, right? That's right. There's still that's not good enough. For us. Minerals, <laughs> frankly. Yeah, right. no, so that, I think that's, I'm going to guess that's the opportunity that Westlawn and Ellipsis see, right? Is to kind of fill that, that gap. You have NOG, obviously, right. is 
the big the big major public company. There's a bunch of other publics that have formed. They haven't been as active. They're kind of still doing small things. That's right. But, you know, yourselves and a few others, you know, and I'm sure there'll be more that pop up over the years, just like minerals, right? Cool. Into 15, right. 16, there was a couple of pensions who came in. You had, you know, a couple of publics pop up along the way. And every once in a while, you kind of get a large family office or a, a large, you know, kind of private fund that pops up to do these 100 plus That's million right. deals in minerals. And it just seems like you guys are at the right place, right time for not up. And then overlaying the pullback of traditional capital in the space from That's commercial right. banks just lends itself more to the need for untraditional capital on the on the drilling side, right? For operators. No, that, no that's right. I mean, the, the air gets pretty thin when you cross, you know, 100, $150 million acquisition costs. And, and we're there. I mean, uh, we can write a stroke and equity check for up to 500 million, even more for the right opportunities. And I think that's, you know, one of our strengths and competitive advantages and certainly want to take advantage of that in, in the coming in 2024. Yeah, so uh, I, I wasn't aware of the the third transaction. Which basin was that in? So, so multi basin. So primarily, the upsides in the, in the Delaware basin I do have some some DJ basin and Hainesville wells in that package. And so, yeah, we'll we'll probably press release that today. And yeah, I think you know it's a good way to end 2023. You know, looking into 2024, we have built you know something of scale now. Great cash flows coming off those assets, and then just a long development tail that we like. And so we look at these acquisitions. Yes, we like PDP, but we certainly have to have that. Development tail, and so our kind of ideal mix of kind of undeveloped to developed is we want to see at least two times the undeveloped inventory as as the, the existing PDP profile, and that can be as high as four, six, eight times. I mean, that's where we're going to make our return. We're we're you know we underwrite these to cement in the borehole, so we're you know thinking of this as long term holders of these assets. And if you have tier one rock with long inventory, we can value that. And I think a lot of people in the non-op space, you know, look at PDP near term wells, wells that are whipped or wells that are, you know, have permits in hand and, and discount those appropriate. And that's it. Uh, well, you know, I think we're, our competitive advantage is that we can underwrite some of those longer dated inventories and give value to those because we're going to, you know, hold this. You know, it's unique in the sense that, you know, we don't have a, a private equity pref running in the background. And so I think, again, our cost of capital is really competitive with, with versus private equity. Have you ever found yourself wandering the halls of NAEP, feeling lost in the sea of boots and attendees? And thinking to yourself, where the hell are all the minerals and non-op executives? Well, my friends, worry no more. On February 8th, NAEP will be launching their inaugural Minerals and Non-op Hub, which will serve as a dedicated and central location for minerals and non-op executives to network and show deals. For more information, please Google NAEP Minerals and Non-op Hub or email exhibit at napexpo.com. So l- let's walk through the transactions and I have a couple of follow-on questions. So yeah. you alluded to this a little bit, but so June 15th, you press release an acquisition from affiliates of North Hudson. So Fortuna and, mm-hmm. and SSR Rockies collectively yep. 4,500 barrels a day, about 250 location, gross remaining locations in the portfolio. And this is Northern Delaware, you said, right? Northern Delaware. Mm-hmm. And then the second acquisition on October 16th was press release, similar area. I don't know if there was much checkerboarding going on on or it was a different part of the Delaware, but 3,000 net acres, 3,000 barrels a day, and then more upside, 900 gross remaining locations. And then walk through this this third acquisition. So you said it was, one of my questions was going to be, well, are you base agnostic, but base agnostic <laughs> asterisk, we're a Permian shop, but this last deal, you know, DJ and, and Haynesville, right? 
So uh, that well, uh, you know, uh, about 6,000 BOE a day, call it 2,500 BOE a day from the DJ, 3,000 BOE a day from the Northern Delaware, and about 500 BOE a day from the from the Hainesville, but gas-weighted horse. You know, just a, a lot of upside associated with that one as well. And w- w- again, that kind of checks the box for that mix PDP versus a lot of undeveloped upside that we like to see and really good rock. The, the upside in the Delaware Basin is some of the best upside you could get in that state line area with high NRIs, uh, a mineral component as well. And so a lot of these deals that we look at that we will carve off kind of mineral interest and put them in a separate sidecar entity just to realize, you know, the arbitrage between the mineral and the non-op space. And so we have that in our our pocket down the road if if we so want to divest of that. But we do look for opportunities where we can arbitrage those those minerals. Yeah, listen, that's interesting you mentioned that. You know, this is something that has been a bit of a phenomenon in the last 18 months on the private equity backed EMP front. You know, you have a lot of these groups six, seven years ago, setting up these drop down royalty vehicles mm-hmm. above right. a certain net would get dropped into these things. And, you know, an operator will have a minerals budget within the land budget. It's not dedicated mm-hmm. for minerals and they'll typically buy three to six months ahead of their drill, but not set. And yep. when you look at 3% hit rate, it ends up not being a ton. So you don't right. really pay attention to it. But then, you know, 20, 25,000 acre positions, five, six years of development delineation, and then kind of peripheral minerals that you pick up along the way. All of a sudden you turn around and you got Savalo and you know Petro right. Legacy and, and all these folks making fifty to hundred fifty million dollar exits on their royalty vehicles. And there's more to come. Super interesting, right? And so I haven't really heard of a, a non-op vehicle. Granted, there aren't tons right, right. at scale, kind of doing the same playbook, right? Carving out something and then you have optionality down the road. Absolutely. With with wherever the market is. So that's that's really interesting. So DJ and and Haynesville, you know, you and and Adam have a background in the Eagleford. We guys look at Bakken, Powder, Anadarko, Appalachia. Let's walk around the horn on all of the above. All of the above, from Alaska to the Gulf Coast, we will look. We're returns focused, basin agnostic, money agnostic. We're all weighted right now. We're Northern Delaware weighted right now. We would like to see some activity outside of the of the of the Permian, but the Permian, I mean, great rock, serendipity all around. It, it is a great place to be, and you know, it's not as mature as the Midland Basin from an you know, a fractionated ownership perspective. And it just allows the non-op game to, f- to flourish. You know, we've gotten close on a couple of other basins. You said the Eagleford, we like the Eagleford as well. And I would see some some transactions outside the Permian in, in 2024. You know what? Let's focus on the gas basins for a second. Yes. So, you know, one, you said Brad was with Kane. I know Kane had a bunch of stuff kind of in the, the Green River Basin, if I'm not mistaken, right? And was had a big gas portfolio and play up there. So I'm sure there's that. that's kind of something that you don't hear about a lot when you talk gas, everyone kind of talks about Haynesville and Appalachia. Yep. Obviously, there's LNG capacity around the corner that's going to come online that makes the Haynesville really compelling. Gas has dropped. It's as we're recording this, yep. kind of 220, 230 in MCF, down from obviously the highs of last year. And then you got Appalachia as its own unique vehicle. I think from a non-op perspective, it's really interesting. At my non-op conference and minerals conference earlier this year, I believe it was Brandon Junker from, mm-hmm. from Providence was talking about the dynamics of you know, the mobility of rigs in Appalachia versus Haynesville and and how that affects cost inflation. So he said, because of the terrain in Appalachia, a lot of these rigs are kind of landlocked. Right. And so when there's huge swings in commodities, you know, the rigs in the Haynesville can move to, you know, Oklahoma, different parts of Texas fairly right. easily. And so if, if you want a gas rig in the Haynesville, I think, you know, at, at certain parts of the cycle, these service providers have a little bit of leverage on you. It's kind of 
of the opposite in Appalachia. Those those rigs are there and they they can't go anywhere else. And so they can't really hike the prices up as severely. And so there was less cost inflation on the service side for DNC versus Haynesville. I, I don't have the exact stats, but I'm just kind of paraphrasing from a prep right. we had from one of the panels at, at my conference. Kind of interesting. I, you know, you guys are you know highly technical and kind of you're doing all sorts of probabilistic and stochastic modeling. Let, let's just talk about, you know, DNC costs over last year and how you look at it across the basins and the trends you've seen. And I know they're coming down. Mm-hmm. So what are your kind of views on all that and, and where we stand today? So, so they are coming down. How far will they come down? I think that's the, the question when we get back to kind of 21 levels. You know, we, we saw the big run up from, from kind of late 2021 into last year, kind of the middle half of last year. And we started seeing them roll over. You know, the way we underwrite, you know, we kind of match DNC costs with the commodity environment and kind of look at a lagging as a, as a lagging indicator. And so we do flex DNC cost through that stochastic modeling effort on our commodity prices. So we'll raise DNC cost up with a probabilistic view on commodity pricing. So in a higher commodity pricing environment, we underwrite higher DNC cost into our, our base models. You know, regarding the, the Hainsville in specific, you know, the, the lack of A&D activity in the Hainsville, I think is a little bit of the, of the bid-ask spread. So your sellers, to your point, look at 25, 26, when the LNG capacity comes, you know, full fully online, they want you to underwrite that into their models. And so they have a much different long-term view of natural gas pricing versus the strips view of natural gas pricing, which is what we base kind of our, our base underwriting on. And so you do see a bit ass spread that, that that's hard to, to narrow right now in the gas-weighted plays. And I think that's why we haven't seen personally as, as much gas A&D activity as, as we'd love a position the Haynes only acquired it at, at $2.25, $2.30 gas. I just don't think you're going to see many sellers in that environment if you're not really sharpening the pencil on long-term gas pricing. How about, you know, kind of looking at the operators and and their hedging programs and, and that going into the analysis? Because that was one thing, again, kind of referencing Providence, they're a big partner of Athons. And, right. uh, you know, one of the things, Athons continued to drill in a lot of their Hainesville position. And, uh, you know, the question kind of you, you say is why are they drilling so much in this price environment? Because their hedging program was still pretty strong, right? And so the, right. the real pricing is pretty good. Do, is it hard to get visibility on, on the hedging program of operators that clearly a very significant part of underwriting, right? Right, it is. So the so way that we look at it, uh, it's hard to get visibility on that, uh, especially on your privates. And so our biggest operators are, you know, underneath our Delaware position are Muburn, you know, private and some publics, EOG, Devon, Permian Resources. But we look at is historical activity and pacing versus commodity environments. And so we'll go back and look and see what they've actually done in the various commodity cycles in, in the Delaware over kind of a three to five year period to see how they flex rig count based on some, some varying commodity environments and base that into our underwriting. And it's one of those things too, you, you don't know what the, the motivation is for the the hedged party. You know, yeah, Athon can drill into because they have a hedge, but they also could save those molecules and just realize a hedge gain, right? Versus versus drilling those wells and selling that that, that commodity into a depressed commodity environment. So, you know, which which way the operators go. I know when we operate out of the San Andreas, we had a pretty strong hedge book and we just said, let's enjoy getting a check every month and not sell. We have the world's largest, you know, underground storage, a reservoir, right? We know the hydrocarbons are there. Let's just realize a hedge gain and save the the barrels for when commodity prices are stronger. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to all of our podcast sponsors. Your property is your legacy, so you should only leave it in the hands of a land management company who has a legacy of its own. If you own oil and gas interests or act as a fiduciary for those who do, you can find a long-term partner at Farmers National Company, who since 1929 
has taken great pride in helping clients maximize the benefits of property ownership by providing turnkey management services and by working alongside them through generational transfers of specialized assets such as oil and gas interests and farmland. To learn more, visit fncenergy.com or reach out directly at energy at farmersnational.com. Since 2019, the Texas Mineral Company has been a leading ground game broker for minerals and non-op deals, closing over 120 transactions across the Permian, Scoop Stack, Haynesville, Bakken, Powder River Basin, DJ, and Eagleford. With deal sizes ranging from 50K upwards of 5 million and 1.5 NRAs upwards of 3,500 NRAs, the Texas Mineral Company can be flexible on where and how they can source your deal flow. For more information on how your team can work with the Texas Mineral Company, please email Toby Martinez at toby at thetexasmineralcompany.com. Scaling up your portfolio while minimizing GNA is the name of the game in the minerals and non-op space. Whether you're a brand new fund, an established team who's growing quickly, or a fully developed portfolio in harvest mode, Opportune's back office outsourcing team can help. Stop worrying about all the headaches that come along with day-to-day accounting and back office operations and contact Opportune today. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Over the past 20 years, Riverbend Energy Group has been the definitive leader in the non-op and mineral space, where they are actively acquiring minerals in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, the Williston, and the Eagleford. Following their $1.8 billion sale of their non-op platform in 2022, they are also back actively acquiring non-op interests in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, and Williston. If you have minerals or non-op working interests in these areas that you would like to sell, then please visit www.riverbendenergygroup.com for more information. Hi there, it's Rachel Reese at R. Reese & Associates, your outhouse counsel. You may ask, what's an outhouse counsel? Well, it's a law firm that is focused on the day-to-day legal tasks that normally would be completed by your legal department. Our attorneys in Houston and DFW have spent their careers in both in-house positions and at large law firms and can provide your company with the efficient and responsive service you would expect from your own legal department for things like contracts, transactions, and title opinions at a fraction of the cost of what you're used to paying. So whether your company has no legal department or your legal department is a mighty team of one, we can help. Give us a call at 832-831-2289 or learn more at rreeslaw.com. No, that's fair. Well, you know, let's talk about kind of the acquisition strategy and like the profile of your targets. So I don't believe you've disclosed, you know, the sellers for the second, third acquisition. The first one was a private equity firm, North Hudson. Mm -hmm. Oh, Travis pays fairly well. I know Fortuna has kind of played picking up smaller interests and building a basket of diversified small interests. So by nature of that, I'm assuming that first 4,500 barrels a day has a good amount of diversification in there. Um, you, you've done three acquisitions. I don't, I don't know the makeup from a diversification and kind of concentration in units, larger working positions versus smaller working positions and the other acquisitions. But regardless, now that you've done three, you're starting to build scale in the portfolio. Mm-hmm. That's right. Can you start to look at more concentrated bets, bigger working as partnerships with an operator to where, you know, one off may seem a little bit risky in the beginning, but blended into a larger portfolio, you know, the, 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 
diversification effect is still in play and it, you know you're ultimately not pigeonholed into having to buy a certain amount of diversification in a one-off acquisition right. just, you give more yeah. color no absolutely so the, the three acquisitions they look very similar i mean we probably have a total of 40 different operators average working interest right around five percent spread out you know not too much concentration risk but to your point yes we would love to partner with an operator to go after a, a, a larger operated package and so think of it as a smaller you know great high quality operator great operating operations team we identify pretty early days the target and the opportunity and partner together to take that down they might not have the the balance sheet strength that that, that, that we do and need some capabilities on the on the funding side we'd love to find those types of opportunities drilling jvs same as as well we can provide some carry economics to a team that may have tier 1b inventory so inventory that doesn't compete for for capital in their highest value targets we can provide some carry economics where they would compete for that capital and that would be a, a win for us as well interesting yeah and th- th- those kinds of partnerships are a way to you know put larger sums of money to work at once right that's right that's right you know you can i just think the more processes you can be involved in the more data you're looking at the more equipped you are to better underwrite quicker and more accurately in the future right as an yeah, that's exactly right and just get the reps i mean in 2023 i think we oh man we screened over 100 deals probably really evaluated close to 30 of those deals and another thing you know a difference between non-operated and operated your, your bidding levels as a as a percent of deals you you screen and evaluate is higher in the non-op game there's always something with operations you, you don't like and you get into the nitty-gritty and you say well i really don't like this in the operating environment i don't like this i don't like that but in, in the non-op game you're underwriting all of that into your your base model and you if your returns focused and you've appropriately underwritten you just seem to have a higher uh, percentage of bids on deals you evaluate so we probably bid on 95 percent of the deals we, we really did full evaluations on no that's excellent and, and i want to circle back on the co-bids so yeah you kind of mentioned you could bring balance sheet strength to someone who you know may need that in, in a process so that's kind of a dog whistle for maybe you know small to mid-sized companies i think one thing that's i've right. seen on co-bids is the non-op or in the right price environment you know an override financing partner right if the nets are high enough right right they're going to want to see alignment so making up a theoretical example if you were to co-bid with someone who had a massive portfolio or a bit you know multi-basin portfolio there's mm-hmm. a, could be a bit of concern on y'all's end on hey you know where exactly is their priority going to be going forward yes we're going to take down this asset together but that asset is part of a bigger whole versus a, a company who may have more concentrated position or mm-hmm. maybe a starter asset for them i don't know right. but you know one thing i've heard in the past is possibly expanding you know the relationship into where you're either part of the capital stack or the partnership is on the broader portfolio this way there's alignment on development going forward i know we're getting in the weeds here a little bit yep. but you know is, is there kind of a preference there just just for the folks listening right who are saying no, i want to reach out build a relationship with ellipsis are they describing what what looks and feels like my company and is it yeah. worth are we more likely to start on second base than from home plate on, on a relationship building side yeah no i would encourage anybody to, to, to talk to us right i mean we're we're open we can be creative with deal structure so please reach out you know i think what we like about that that type of investment is, is the governance that you don't have in a diversified portfolio and so we really want to be true partners uh, we want to have a seat at the table if we're going to bring meaningful dollars to it and that that's going to be you know go into the development drilling which allows us to, to underwrite more effectively too if, if we can stack hands on a development pace what we're trying to accomplish that that helps sharpen our underwriting you know we do have a, an operations background we think that we can lend some value to a smaller nimble team and so would encourage people to reach 
out to get our perspective and, and just to talk, have that conversation. Now, what about on the other side of the fence in the mineral space? So mm-hmm. and one thing that becomes really interesting for a large shop like yourselves is you have a lot of sawdust and a lot of data that minerals companies don't necessarily get to see uh, right. even if they have interest in a unit, right? A non-op company is privy to typically development timing and all sorts of different costs, midstream data, right? Because right. they want to, the operator wants to make sure you're going to pay. So have you got, you have this minerals drop down vehicle. Have you thought about either partnering with groups who can leverage some of the data you have, and then you have some sort of buying partnership since you're elephant hunting? Uh, mm-hmm. I, I assume you're not going to have this in-house ground game, but I don't know, leveraging that the, the machine and the data and the vehicle you have in a way to kind of top up that mineral vehicle proactively? Or is it really just high nets, carving it out, dropping it down? It, it's the latter, but to the to the former, I would encourage folks that if they have, you know, proposals, uh, reach out. Let, let's talk. You know, we do have, I would think, a competitive advantage r- relative to other minerals companies from the data perspective. What we found to date, though, is that the mineral acquisition metrics are just not competitive to the non-op acquisition metrics, even with that advantage. You know, do we do one-off kind of, you know, we have a interest in a DSU and someone picks up the phone and calls us and says, hey, I got a couple of mineral acres. Do you want to buy them? Sure. It's, you know, it's not our preferred method to deploy large sums of capital. We, we would we would never be able to deploy the amount of capital we'd like to at that scale. But if, if someone has some some interesting ideas, yeah, reach out. Okay, great. And what about, so, you know, in your initial press release, the, the, the message to the market was, hey, we're looking for 50 to 500 plus million dollar deals. Mm-hmm. Now that you have a, an established portfolio, what about filling in the checkerboard, the bolt-ons, one to $25 million, you know, one to $50 million deals that you already have an interest in the unit, you've already underwritten it. Is that a phone call that, you know, can get fielded or there's parts of your team who can filter that type of stuff? This way you continue to, you know, improve positions you like. And the the, the saying is a small deal and a big deal require the same amount of time. That's but right. is there some sort of synergy there or areas you already own in that you might be able to quickly evaluate some and, and pick up bits and pieces? No, that's exactly right. I mean, if we have an interest in a DSU and, and someone calls up and it's either an offsetting DSU or the, the same DSU, that's a pretty easy lift for us. But but honestly, we're resource constrained. We've done this with, we just had our seventh employee. And so we did most of 23 with kind of an, our average head count of 23 was five employees. I mean, we're looking to grow the team. Uh, so if anyone's out there listening, engineers, finance guys, come on, uh, give us a call. We're, we're, we're looking to expand the team in, in 24 because we need more more resources to, to quickly do those types of things. Because I mean, you know, it, it probably takes us, you know, a hundred man hours to do a full evaluation of an opportunity from, from the grassroots. And now as you you build that that knowledge and data set that becomes less and less, but it still is, is pretty resource uh, intensive to, to evaluate these types of things. And so, yeah, if, if, if we're looking to deploy large sums of capital, we got to pick and choose what we can evaluate today. And hopefully that gets a little more manageable as we expand the team. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it, it's been great having you on. I, I really appreciate you kind of walking through the story and the strategy deals to date. I'll, I'll hand the mic over to you kind of to close it out. What what do you foresee 2024, 2025, the non-off space looks like? Uh, do you foresee a lot of private mm-hmm. equity portfolios coming to market? Do you foresee, you know, the need? Uh, you, I don't know if you guys have a view on interest rates and, you know, the ability, if there's going to be an ESG bug on any of the credit funds out there and more capital gets pulled away. So, you know, partnerships on, on the drilling side, COBED, you know, with the, the continued mass consolidation upstream, right. just where do you see the, the most exciting opportunity set? And no one can look into the crystal ball, but if we're, we're going to play that game, how do you guys see right. the world? No, I think 23 was a very active year in the non-op space. There were a lot of non-op 
unoperated opportunities of scale in 2023. I think 2024, it'd be hard to match that cadence of, of large marketed non-op opportunities. We know of several that will come to market next year and we'll be active participants in those. But I think in 24, for us to deploy the kind of capital we'd like to deploy, it will be involving more of these these partnerships, these JV drilling opportunities, finding someone to go, you know, it doesn't have to be, we can look at conventional plays. We can look at the, if, if Oxy is going to, you know, have $6 billion of, of carve-offs to, to help fund their, their latest acquisition, you know, partnering with teams to take down some of these conventional assets that, that Oxy may bring to market certainly sounds interesting to us. And so I think 24 for us is going to be a very active year. I think it looks a lot different than 23. I think we, we do different structures in, in 24. We expand the team, continue to grow the portfolio and continue to build scale. All right, Matt. Well, thanks again for coming on. Congrats to a great start and a great 2023 for you and your team. Happy holidays when they get here and we'll look forward to connecting in the new year. I appreciate it, Tim. I enjoyed myself. Thank you. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties podcast is meant for informational purposes only. Tim Powell and the Minerals and Royalties Authority are not promoting any specific securities or investments nor are they providing any type of investment advice. If you enjoyed the episode, then I encourage you to tune in more and also check out the Minerals and Royalties Authority YouTube channel. Thanks and see you next time.